Kia koutou. Um, Charlotte, I thought you were less of a um, Gaga vibe and more of a like Trinity in the Matrix 4 oh, kind of vibe. Yes, um, yes. Where, that was immediately what I thought of. Um, but, uh, no worries, yeah, always, always. Um, hey, so something I always think is really good to um, hear is different people's observations on our community. And I thought, um, my, um, <laughs> which can go either way, right? Can they? But um, from, um, these ones come from my mum, um, who popped into camp for a day. Um, so there's some good ones here for you. Um, which, um, this needs to be trimmed from the recording, because I promised her last night I would not share these things. Right? Um, so, um, uh, mum's in her late 60s, lovely lady from Tawa, Wellington. Um, her first uh, quote, which I took from the conversation last night, she thinks you're all lovely, by the way, but she said, um, she said she walked into the room and said, these people look like hippies, I wonder if they're vaccinated. That's um, <laughs> her first wondering. I said none of them. Um, but, um, uh, she um, came away from the weekend um, deeply convicted on the climate and has bought a vegan cookbook. Um, so, uh, oh, that was good, eh? Middle New Zealand being moved, one twenty something at a time. Um, and, um, and one of the coolest things I think she said was um, just that as she got around the place and talked to different people, that she heard so many stories of people who had. Um, a decisive sense of how God had moved in their life and called them. And I was like, oh man, that is a great thing to hear about our community. Um, so um, yeah, that, that to start with. And what I want to share on today um, is, uh, Rose said that you've been doing, continuing this theme around hope. Um, and I've been thinking a little bit about recently about the relationship between hope and courage. Um, there is a... I think is it, is it Emily Dickinson who says um, hope is the thing with feathers? Have I got the right one? Yep. Um, hope is not the thing with feathers. <laughs> I saw a great poem a little while ago that said, no, Emily, it's not the thing with feathers, it's a sewer rat. Um, <laughs> like, hope is an incredibly courageous thing. Hope is an incredibly a pigeon, yeah, a Cuba Street pigeon. Um, hope is a Cuba Street pigeon. Hope is the thing with no feathers and missing a leg. Um, but um, hope is um, an incredibly courageous thing, particularly if you've been disappointed. I feel like it's not that cool to hold hope anymore. To hold on to hope when you have no reason to believe that things will be different is incredibly courageous. And I think anyone of great courage is also someone of great hope. Because they actually have to believe, you know, Daniel gave us that great thing at camp around that hope is not optimism. It's not looking at what's in front of us and therefore being able to go, well, it will work out in the end. It's actually, there is no evidence, and yet, and yet we persist, um, and yet we hold on. So hope is such a courageous act, and it's a courageous act that's really needed at the moment, and it's a prophetic act to believe for something that no one can see. Um, and hope sometimes, like, it's often foolish. I think of that scripture, I think it's in Romans, that the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it is the power of God. You know, and we like the cross. Man, I love N.T. Wright's thing around this. He says, to the, on the day of the cross, nobody who looked at the cross thought it was a beginning. Everybody thought it was an ending. Everybody thought it was over on that day. And we get to, like, look at all these Bible stories and go, ah, oh, so great, it all worked out in the end, you know? But actually, for the people on the day, it was a shit show. For the people on the day, it was hopeless, and yet they chose to persevere in hope. And what a profoundly courageous thing to hold on when there was nothing saying that it could ever be different than it had been before. 
You know, there's thousands of other times that that Roman torture instrument had been the end of people's lives. Who could ever believe that it would be the beginning of a revolution? And so hope is this incredibly courageous thing. And um, I've kind of recently decided that um, I want to, uh, for the next year, spend a lot of time preaching from the Old Testament. Um, because I think we spend a lot of time in the Gospels, um, which is great. Um, but um, I uh, went to a workshop a little while ago with Rashawn Allpress, who is the uh, uh, principal of Laidlaw College in Auckland. And um, one of his observations, he read a statistic that said the Western Church preaches about 12 chapters of the Bible. <laughs> and he's like, you can probably guess what those chapters are and what those verses are. And I think the Old Testament um, asks us to confront some sticky situations and some things which feel really uncomfortable in a very different cultural context, and then to find Christ walking in those pages. Um, so one book that I've got really into recently, which is a book of hope and courage, is the book of Ruth. Uh, who's, who's familiar with the book of Ruth? Yeah, what do people know about the book of Ruth? Much? A little bit? Some people know a little bit. So I'm going to give you a little rundown of the story because it's it's like it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit complex. But basically, um, there is this lady called Naomi, and she lives uh, in Bethlehem, um, Bethlehem, where Jesus uh, was later born. Um, Bethlehem at this time had about 200 people in it, um, and um, so a really tiny little place. And Naomi ends up marrying this guy called Elimelech. Um, and they are Israelites. So Naomi and Elimelech get together. Um, they get together. Um, and um, they, are, um, they are living in Israel, living in Bethlehem. Um, and uh, the, a famine hits Israel. Um, and so at this point, they realize that they can't live there anymore. They move to a place called Moab. Moab, kind of an interesting place to move to because there's a bit of a history with Moab and the Israelites. The Mo- Moabites actually like really handed the Israelites' asses to them in a battle like quite a bit earlier. So not, not, super, good, um, not super good relations here, but they go to Moab with this food. And then they have two sons. And these two sons are called Kilion and Malon. And Kilion and Malon grow up and they marry these two young women by the name of Orpah and Ruth, who the book is named after. So we've got this one big happy family of, um, of the Israelites, Naomi and Elimelech, um, Malon and Kilion, and then Malon and Kilion marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and they're there. Suddenly what happens is Elimelech dies. Um, he passes away. And so what happens in this situation is basically that um, this puts Naomi in a slightly precarious situation um, in a very patriarchal society where Elimelech was kind of her, her meal ticket, her hero. And so then, what, what, who will be her carer is her sons, is Kilion and Malon. Um, but then what happens is very quickly they die, too. And so what you have is suddenly the situation, this really precarious situation, where Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are three widows um, living in Moab. Um, and basically, to be a widow, um, you'll know that often the Old Testament talks about, you know, what is true religion but to care for widows and orphans? The reason for that, because you pretty much didn't get much lower than a widow in this time, that there was no one to care for you, there was a complete dropout of your social safety net, you were kind of a pariah, people didn't want to know you, you were excluded. Um, I've an IDP commentary on this, these widows in the ancient Near East had lost all social status and generally were also without political or economic status. 
They would equate to the homeless in contemporary society. Typically, they had no male protector and were therefore economically dependent on society at large. And so you kind of see this later on in chapter two, where um, Ruth has been reduced to gleaning, which was basically this practice where um, a group of men would be out harvesting the fields, and gleaning was where someone would wander behind, pick up what dropped off the, of the, of the ears of um, corn or barley, and they would just pick up what was left to feed their family. So they are absolutely three widowed women, super destitute, no possibilities in front of them. And so the best thing to do for a widow at this time was to go home, go back to your people, maybe one of your relatives, maybe a distant relative, someone will take pity on you. And so Naomi says um, to Orpah and to Ruth, um, she says, May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage, Ruth, one night. She says, Go back home. You're young. Maybe you'll meet someone else. Maybe he can care for you. Maybe you can have other kids. Maybe they can care for you. And Orpah says, yep, sure, I'm going to head off home. A little bit of protesting, but mostly heads off. But then Ruth will not leave Naomi alone. And um, Ruth says this passage, which if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, this will be the one you know, um, from Ruth 1.16. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. So beautiful, eh? So Ruth commits herself to Naomi, who's not even her mother, her mother-in-law, commits herself to her. But in this, she also commits herself to poverty, insecurity, and being an outsider. It's like pretty powerful and pretty courageous, eh? She's like, I'm committing myself to be with you. But but within this, she's like, yeah, I'll probably be destitute for the rest of my life. Um, rather than going home to my family. Ruth takes a bad situation and commits to making it a whole lot worse to be faithful to Naomi. It's like incredibly selfless. And in this situation, the only way socially that you would have out of this situation um, was this uh, crazy term, um, some of you may have heard of, which is you needed a kinsman redeemer which sounds like a character in Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> but you needed a kinsman redeemer um, to step up for you. Or sounds like kind of like a wild kind of weapon of some sort. Eh? Um, and the idea of a kinsman redeemer, this came about early on in the, the Israelite people. Um, in Leviticus 25, it was basically needed to be a man in the family who would step up at that time and say, I will fix this. Um, so examples of this, if someone had... Um, murdered a member of the family, it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to go and murder the guy who murdered the guy. <laughs> um, and, um, and in the situation where um, there had been um, maybe uh, a crime against the person, it was the job of the kinsman redeemer to go and get even. Um, again, in the, uh, the commentary I've been using, um, it says the re- their role was to recover the tribe's losses, whether these losses were human, in which case he hunted down the kill- killer, Judicial, in which case he assisted in lawsuits, or economic, in which case he recovered the property of the family member. Um, So Ruth and Naomi need a family member who will come and make this right. They need someone who will come out of the woodwork in their desperation and being destitute and being these women, uh, these widows. They need someone who will stand up and make it right and take responsibility for their well-being. So enters this strapping young lad, not actually that young, but strapping lad by the name of Boaz. 
Um, and um, I'm not going to spend too much time on Boaz today, but essentially to race through the rest of the last kind of three chapters of this book. Ruth is out gleaning in the fields. She's collecting what's left over. Um, she comes across Boaz, who is related to Naomi through her um, dead husband, Elimelech. Um, and he marries Ruth, thus lifting them out of poverty and isolation again. So Boaz is their kinsman, redeemer, and he saves them from this life of poverty, of being destitute, of being outside of being pariahs. Are you following me so far? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's like a bit, eh? Um, <laughs> um, so um, why a kinsman redeemer? Like, what's the deal with this? Um, there's this guy, Mitchell Chase, who said this, which I thought was pretty cool. He said, when people acted as kinsmen redeemers for their family, they were imaging the work of Yahweh, or God, to the destitute and the helpless. So they were taking on the role of God as a redeemer to the destitute and the helpless. They were vessels in the great redeemer's hands. I like that. So by doing this, they are tools in the hand of God to redeem his people. Um, the redemption by Boaz was a picture of what God has done and would do for Israel. And so out of this, um, what a lot of theologians have agreed on is this idea that Boaz is what they call a type of Christ. Um, and so what a type is, if you're unfamiliar with that language, we're kind of talking about like an archetype or a prototype, an example. There are these moments throughout the Old Testament where we kind of see Jesus turn up in other ways, or we see the heart of God that will be revealed in Christ Jesus turn up in other ways. And a lot of people have said that um, this picture of the kinsman redeemer of Boaz as a type of what Christ is like. Am I making sense there? Yeah. And so um, this guy Mitchell Chase again says, if someone invited you to listen to a story about a redeemer from Bethlehem and Judah who fulfilled and exceeded the law with his acts of mercy and abundant provision before entering into covenant with a bride from the, from the nations, that story could be about Boaz, but it could easily be about Jesus. Um, so this, the, a lot of theologians have agreed that Boaz is this early picture of what Christ is like, of taking the destitute, the helpless, the widow, the orphan, and restoring them. And so from there, what I want to say is Boaz is to Ruth as Christ is to us. Boaz is to Ruth as Christ is to us. We are the broken in need of healing, and Christ on the cross comes as our kinsman redeemer, Christ on the cross comes as our kinsman redeemer. So this, um, this picture, Ruth had this choice in her moment of fear. Her options were at the moment where she realises everything is stuffed, is to return to her old family, to return to her old lands, to return to her old gods. But Ruth chooses not to be the architect of her own redemption, chooses not to go after her own redemption, but she awaits a kinsman redeemer. She awaits someone to redeem her. And what I want to say today is that in our moments of poverty and powerlessness and hopelessness, we face a similar question. Will we attempt to be the architects of our own redemption, or will we await our kinsman redeemer to be the one who rescues and heals us? You get in there? Will we run home to the old gods, to the old lands, to the old ways, or will Christ be our kinsman redeemer? I love what Mark Johnson and some of the wheels crew say. I say, let's live in a way where if what Jesus says isn't true, it doesn't work. And that's really what the kinsman redeemer is, is that if Christ is not the redeemer, 
then it doesn't work for us because we won't go home to the old lands. We won't go home to the old family. We won't go home to the old gods. And so this is the challenge, I think, that Ruth puts before us. Will we try to rescue ourselves or say again to Jesus, as Ruth said to Naomi, wherever you go, I will go. You will be my God. I will be your father. You will be my family. Where you die, I will die. Wherever, wherever you go, Jesus, I am with you. And so I want to look at kind of, I guess, some of our temptations briefly today. Um, because I think in these moments where it feels like all is lost, generally where we tend to go is to batten down the hatches and to try to pull back together some kind of life. When we are placed in the situation of Ruth, where we find ourselves that it's all screwed, few of us have the hope that leads us to the kind of courage that says, I will go in even deeper on this to see if Christ will be my kinsman or redeemer. And that is the kind of life we're called to. That is what Jesus does on the cross. Like I said, at the cross, nobody thought it was a beginning. Everyone thought it was an ending. And all his disciples who had thrown everything in for Christ looked at that cross and believed their lives were over. And in the same way, Naomi looked, uh, Ruth looked at Naomi, believing her life was over, and said, yes, I will go with you. And I believe that's the call we have, is to say to Christ, on the worst day, Jesus, I'm going in even deeper with you. I'm going all in with you. Hard stuff. So the question I want to ask today, if Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, how do we wait for his deliverance? Some three quick stories and ideas I want to share with you today. I remember um, a few years ago when we first started the Cuba chapter, the Cuban Missional Community up um, top of Cuba Street there, where a bunch of the crew still are now, uh, that we had this idea, um, this hope, that our front door would always be unlocked. We wanted our front door to always be unlocked um, as a gesture, a prophetic gesture, um, that all people were welcome and that we were not going to protect ourselves um, from the life that was outside our front doors. Um, I actually heard a quote from um, a, an anarchist Christian a while ago who said the beginning of violence is locking your front door. So think on that one for a little bit. Um, but um, I remember that we had um, uh, a year or two in there. Um, I, um, I'm someone who's hopeless at backing up my computer. I don't know if anyone else is like that. Um, but um, I decided I would finally back up my computer because the thing in the corner of my MacBook was saying, it has been 742 days since you backed up. <laughs> um, so I hunted down my um, backup hard drive, finally managed to find it. Um, I put it on our, uh, I put it on our kitchen table, um, plug it in, and it says this is going to take like hours and hours. So I go to my room, leave it there to update, um, come out a couple of hours later, and it's all gone. Oh no! Um, and uh, and sort of obviously start checking around the house. Did someone put that away? What happened? You know, and did the little like little Apple thing of like where is this showing up? And it showed up briefly at the night shelter and then it disappeared forever, <laughs> and it was gone. And in those moments, like, man, I lost so many precious photos and memories in that moment, like so many things, all my years at um, Zeal with the youth center, so many things lost in that moment. And even just the frustration, because we had a lot of people come into that house um, who were staying in the night shelter in different places, and the sort of sense of like righteous judgment in you <laughs> that kind of wants to be like, Damn it, like we were trying to be these people of generosity, we were trying to live a different way, and what have we got for it? 
And um, the, the instinctive thing in you, and I saw it happen immediately with our house, is everyone in the house went, we need to stop locking the front door. The front door needs to be locked now. Um, and it really was one of those moments um, where um, we were faced, I guess, with the difference or the, the space between this way of Christ, which continues um, in the spaces of insecurity and of pain to open wider, and that one which says, batten down the hatches, save yourself, the cost is too high. In our moments of fear and powerlessness, our temptation is always to batten down the hatches, eh? It's to kind of like, is to retreat, to increase our security. How do we protect ourselves? How do we hold on to the little bit we have? How do we make sure we're never hurt again? Like, how do we do this? Um, in our fear, our rescuer isn't coming. We kind of start to rescue ourselves. We start to find little ways to rescue ourselves, little ways to make sure that we never have to feel that painful feeling again or feel regret again. We build walls around our hearts, but we also build walls around our stuff, and often the two are bound up together. We become resentful and unforgiving to those who've hurt us, and, and, and at like practical levels, we start to take out more and more elaborate insurance policies the older we get <laughs> to make sure that no one can ever take our stuff and it doesn't hurt us if we do. You know, there's systemic repercussions to how we feel about this. Um, and I remember a few years ago, because this has happened to me so many times now, <laughs> but um, being at um, uh, a place we used to live in in Newtown called the Goat Shed, and we had a young guy staying with us um, who came to faith there um, and, um, and just had this, yeah, this kind of, got kicked out of home, moved in with us, came to faith and had this kind of miraculous transformation. Um, and um, I remember, like, we'd hear him just blasting Hillsong out of the front corner of the house, you know, and we were all, like, angsty and anti-Hillsong at the time, but he was, like, all for it. We, like, baptised him on the south coast on, like, the coldest day ever. It was this amazing, like, story of transformation. And then um, a few weeks later, just all our stuff starts to go missing. Like, everything starts to disappear. Um, and again, you feel that kind of sense of that righteous indignation of, like, but we did so much for you. <laughs> like, like, how do you? Exactly. Thank you, Donna. Um, um, and, um, and so I remember I decided, that's it. I'm putting a lock on my bedroom door, which is, like, the most handyman thing I've ever done in my life. Um, so I buy this lock. I borrow a drill off someone, and everyone's gone out, and I start installing this lock on my bedroom door, and halfway through it, I hear the front door open, and this young kid who's living with us comes along. He's like, oh, do you want a hand? <laughs> so together, me and this young guy who's ripping us off installed this lock together. And as it's happening, it was like God sent him prophetically into that space just to point out the ridiculousness of my response, you know, that here I am, rather than talking to the kid about it, I'm putting on a lock, and now he's helping me to do it. <laughs> and this is like the ridiculousness, I think, sometimes of our like, impulse to security and our impulse to protect, right? Is that it's like, man, I was like, here I am face to face with this young guy, not talking about what's happened while we install a lock together on my door. What even is that? Is there anything more passive-aggressive in Kiwi than that? <laughs> See, I think we are made like Ruth not to find our security in locks or in insurance policies or in protecting our hearts or in building walls around ourselves, but we are meant to find our security with our kinsman redeemer. That's the rescuer we are meant to be waiting for, and that is the rescue we're meant to long for when we are hurt and when people take advantage of us. Not the idea that we will somehow be justified or that we will be vindicated against them. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, 
my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. See, the reason that Christians, when they've done it right in history, have been able to live these radically generous lives is because we find our security in Christ. And so anything can be taken from us. And we never lose who we are. Everything was taken from Christ on the cross. And yet he continues to pour out love and mercy because he knows who his Father is. And if we want to be people of incredibly powerful generosity who, when we are taken advantage of, continue to pour out love, then our hope needs to be in our kinsman redeemer coming through. So that like Naomi, we can be in the very worst situation and then say, Lord, I will give more. I will give more. So point one, to wait for our kinsman redeemer is to put our security in his hands rather than our own. To wait for our kinsman redeemer is to put our security in his hands rather than our own. A couple of years ago, I um, handed over this community to Rose. Um, and uh, it was an incredibly hard thing for me to leave this community. Not that I've like, totally left, but it was hard not to be in the thick of this. Um, we, um, I had been a part of Blueprint for 14 or 15 years at that point. Um, the only person who's been here vaguely as long as me is Jess Johnson, who's probably been here, what, 12 years? Wow, okay, cool. Um, so, long time. Um, but um, part of the call on my life, um, which God's been really clear about, is to, um, to bring things to a place of health and thriving and then to leave them and then to serve something else. And it was really clear that there was this um, call to move on from here. Um, but I just remember, like, man, when we first started, like, the, the, the missional house, the chapter at, at Cuba... Like, it was so hard to get even three or four of us to come to prayers. And I remember in those last few months, like, going down to St. Peter's and just weeping because there'd be, like, 18 young adults there choosing to pray every evening, you know? And when something has got that good, man, it just hurts to leave it when it's got that good, eh? And then to go and hang out with, like, your church of six, who sometimes two don't turn up and it's your church of four, <laughs> you know? It just feels like a, a great, like, tumble down. And the loneliness of those things. When you come from a community of this beauty, like if you're a part of this community, I want to remind you how beautiful and special this community is. Like it's actually really special here, what you have. And the heart and the spirit and like the, the, the wholehearted yes to Jesus in this place is so unique in the New Zealand and the Western Church. It's such a special place. So to step out from here just so, so sore at times. Um, and just brings about this, um, for me, was just this season of, like, deep, deep loneliness. Like, deep loneliness. Um, like, I think we all really desire to belong, eh? There can almost be nothing in us, like, deeper than our desire to belong somewhere. The other night, we um, had a guy who just started coming along to Brooklyn who was at our life group, and we were talking about um, uh, experiences of the church. And um, he is um, a pretty rough-looking guy who has come from a rough background and pretty much has never been welcome in any church he's been to, but has a really passionate faith. And, um, and so in this, we're going around the circle and saying, what's your best experience of church? And then he says, oh, my best experience of church is the mongrel mob. <laughs> um, I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, I've never felt love like I felt there. And it's just this reminder to me, you know, that actually, like, our, our desperation for belonging, whoever will wholeheartedly accept us and whoever will wholeheartedly welcome us, and, like, that is where we will go, eh? 
You know, that is where we will go. And, a, you know, a bird without a nest will perch anywhere that's safe. Um, and, um, and I think for many of us, our desire for belonging, it's just so incredibly deep. And so when I hear this, like, vicious rhetoric um, in the media and in politics at the moment about the gangs, I think you're talking about people who have found a place to belong. <laughs> talking about people desperate to belong. And it's an indictment not on the gangs, but on the church. If the most love they found in society was in the mongrel mob, eh? Like, that's actually our problem, not their problem. Um, anyway, going on a, a bit of a, a rant there. Um, but loneliness and brokenness will drive us strange places, and our desire for belonging will drive us really strange places. Um, Augustine said this, so powerful. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. It's like such a man, so powerful. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Like our ultimate place of belonging is with our kinsman redeemer. And anywhere else will not satisfy us. You know, community is great. Community is important. But as I've been through some rough times this year, I've realised there are times where I could have support around 24-7 every day and it still would not be enough. Because there is a, there is a belonging in God that no human can ever give to me. And so we are desperate for belonging, and um, Ruth has this opportunity to return to her belonging, to return to her land, to return to the place she's grown up in, and says, no, I'm going one deeper. I'm awaiting my kinsman redeemer for that belonging. I'm not going back to the familiar places. So I want to say to you today, if you feel a deep ache to be known, the only balm to that ache is your kinsman redeemer. The only balm to that ache is belonging with God. And the final thing I want to say around this, like there's the loneliness that we have from not being connected, but there's also an existential loneliness in us that no person can ever feel. And unless we will take that to Christ, you know, there is no one that's going to be able to give you all the pastoral chats you need to find the healing you need to feel. And I know that's probably hard to hear, but if you put that on Rose, you will break Rose. If you put that on Daniel, you will break Daniel because they make good pastors but lousy gods, eh? <laughs> and so this thing of belonging is deep but we must await that belonging in our kinsman redeemer and so please before you put that on others to answer that need and you please make sure you also put it on your kinsman redeemer because those people will never be able to answer and I would just say briefly I think we have an epidemic of burnout in the western church from people who go too quickly to one another sometimes instead of to the one who can actually heal them I'm not saying don't go to one another. I'm saying community is really important. You know in another sermon I'd be talking about how important community is. But please go to Jesus before you go to community so that, so that we are doing what we can do to support you um, and not what we could never do as humans. Yeah? Didn't plan to say that. Anyway. Um, so point two, to wait for our kinsman redeemer is for our hearts to find their home in him. To wait for our kinsman redeemer is for our hearts to find our home in him. A few years ago, um, I was in Ethiopia. Um, there's a little, um, uh, sadly, <laughs> aggressively graffitied uh, shipping container, coffee container out here, which I set up a few years ago. Not so involved with anymore, but they, um, we set up this little coffee business to get young people into their first jobs. And I have this dream to go to Ethiopia and visit the place where the, um, 
where the coffee was um, farmed um, and harvested. Um, so um, I saw this documentary called Black Gold. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but it was kind of one of the original big like fair trade docos. Um, and, um, and so I just like, as I sometimes do, um, I just tried to reach out to the guy on it. Um, and actually it's the funny thing, eh, that like people are like, how do you get in touch with these people? I'm like, you just call. Like, <laughs> like there's so many people like Shane Claiborne has that story of like ringing Mother Teresa and she just picked up. Like a bunch of the most amazing people in the world are actually just waiting for you to call them, but everyone's too shy to call, you know. I sent my book to Tony Campolo, he wrote me a handwritten letter, you know. <laughs> all, you, all you have to do is ask. And people are often just like, they're like, oh, I hope some young person in New Zealand is ready to call me. Anyway, all of <laughs> a lot of these people are just waiting for someone passionate to reach out and ask them um, for their wisdom. So I just uh, call up um, Teresa Mestella in, um, in Ethiopia, and he says, "Yes, you can come on. Um, you can come on Boxing Day, and we'll show you around." Um, so we um, we go uh, arrive there um, after coming through um, uh, Palestine and Israel, Turkey, a bunch of places. Landed down there, hang out with him for a couple of days. Ended up with all the spare time. Um, so start walking through town, um, just seeing who we might bump into or what might be around. Didn't really plan to have four or five spare days in, um, in Addis Ababa. Bump into this guy who says, have you ever been to Mercato Market? It is the biggest outdoor market in all of Africa. I will take you around. So end up following this guy down with these, these things, um, all these different streets, like... Um, talking to all these people, and eventually at the end I decide to shout him lunch. Um, and we're having lunch, and he says, so what are you going to do now? I said, oh, well, I think I'll go up north. There's meant to be these Coptic churches up there. And he says, oh, no, no, no. Don't go to the north. The north is terrible. The south is much better. In fact, I will be your guide. <laughs> and it was one of those situations which was, like, so awkward um, that, uh, that I just sort of go, oh, yep, sure, right, <laughs> let's go. Next morning at 5am, jump in a uh, truck with him and a driver that he'd hired, and we just start heading south. Um, and what unfolded was my realisation that there was nothing to see in the south, but that he wanted to get back to his family, um, and uh, I was enabling that trip. So yay for him, he pulled one over me really good. Um, but I remember as, as I went along, um, we, we had this list of things that we were going to do together, um, and um, things I wanted to see, coffee farms, and gradually, one by one, more and more of them would be pushed off the list. And the days would become longer and longer and less like anything I thought was going to happen on this trip. Um, and um, we um, arrived in this town, um, stay the night, he says, you need to be up at 5am, we're going to this other place. I get up at 5 Waiting, the driver decides he's not happy, so wait on the side of this road for about four hours, or nothing's happening from 5am. Um, and by this point, I was just so exhausted, so over it, so frustrated. Um, I was so sick of that experience of people talking about me in a language I didn't understand, so sick of being the butt of the joke, so sick of bankrolling the whole thing. And I just remember having this like pity party on the side of the road, and I just actually started like punching the dirt. I was so angry, and then I just heard the Holy Spirit just cut through and say, Ah, oh, you're feeling powerlessness. Have you ever felt this before, have you? Um, and it was this, this, this crazy moment of going, Oh, this is an unusual experience for me. And the Spirit through kids speaking through this experience of powerlessness. And something I've realised as I've gone to different places, particularly um, 
developing contexts around the world, um, is that so often my sense of control and my sense of power is upended over and over and over again. And I kind of don't like who I become in some of those settings. Like, I get really indignant, I get really frustrated, I get really overwhelmed. Um, and um, powerlessness is a super raw experience. And in that experience, I think it's really easy for us to become someone we didn't think we were or someone we didn't want to be, eh? Like, can anyone else relate to this? Those situations where you lose control and suddenly someone um, arises in you who you didn't know before. I had a friend a few years ago who lost his job for a couple of years, and the way that he responded to that was by taking more and more control of the household we lived in over two years. So I remember I got really chewed up one day for putting the sponge on the right-hand side of the sink and not the left-hand side. <laughs> but his world had become so small that he needed to control every part of it. You know, This was his way of getting power for a powerless situation. Um, and I just think that is so true of us, that if we are not careful, what happens in our experiences of powerlessness or loss of control is that we become... Um, someone who tries to seize control of everyone in our lives and everything in our lives. And before we know it, we're trying to manipulate people, manipulate circumstances to feel that we have a sense of control again. And um, one of the things that Ruth turns down um, as she heads off to follow Naomi is she turns down her old gods. She turns down her old gods. I don't know what she knew about the, the Israelite gods. Maybe she didn't know much anymore. But her old sense of what governed the universe, of what was sovereign, of what was powerful, she turned her back on to follow them, to follow the one true God. See, we are made, like Ruth, to trust in the power of our kinsman redeemer, not in our own power. No other power, no measure of control over your life will bring you the peace you need. I think there are some, some of us we can live in such a way where we think, if I just get... This next thing, if I get a little more control, if I get the next promotion, if I have a little more money, then finally I will seize control over my life. It's not coming. It's not coming. We are made like Ruth to trust in the power of our kinsman redeemer. No other power, no measure of control over your life will bring you the peace you think you can bring for yourself. You are not capable of being the architect of your own liberation and salvation. You are not capable of delivering yourself the control that you want to have to be, have peace in this life. That peace will only come from your kinsman redeemer. So point three, to wait for our kinsman redeemer is to trust in the power of God over our own control. To wait for our kinsman redeemer is to trust in the power of God over our own control. The, um, oh man, I've been going a while. Sorry, Tim. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap up. But, but those three points... Point one, to wait for our kinsman redeemer is to put our security in his hands rather than our own. To wait for our kinsman redeemer is for our hearts to find our home in him. To wait for our kinsman redeemer is to trust in the power of God over our own control. And we're heading into the season of Advent at the moment. Um, and um, often we think we're heading into the season of Christmas, which means a season of consumption season of um, having all our desires and all our and all of our wants met but what we're actually getting into as the people of God is the season of Advent and the season of Advent is about an oppressed people who are awaiting a Messiah who would bring them liberation and so if there is any time in the year any season of the church calendar 
for us to sit with what it means to wait on our kinsman redeemer. Now is the season we do that. As we sit with the unmet longings, we sit with the unmet need for belonging, the unmet need for control, the unmet need for security, and we say, Christ come, Christ come at Christmas, Jesus come, Lord come. So, I'm aware that this is um, probably quite heavy for some people, and heavier than I intended it to be. Um, but why don't we just close our eyes for a moment and just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Mm, loving God, yeah, no one thought it was the beginning. Everyone thought it was an ending at the cross. But you were working salvation and liberation in that moment. I mean, Jesus, for those people here who feel like they are awaiting a home, um, those who are awaiting safety, those who are awaiting security, a sense of power and the powerlessness, God, um, Lord, I pray that you would come now. Um, you would come as kinsman redeemer. You would meet us, Jesus. Come, loving God. Some people, there's like a real particular thing or a particular ache that um, is singing out for you at the moment. I just encourage you, this is a first moment to just put that ache and that longing before God. You may want to put out your hands as if to surrender. And just that sense of hope being a really courageous act. There are some people here that feel like to surrender it is just so scary because what if God doesn't come through? So invite you courageously to lay that thing before God. God, we just declare that you came through for Ruth and Naomi. Um, and you have come through for so many of your people over and over again. You came through through the cross of Christ and through its resurrection. And Lord, I just pray for those of us who live in despair, a sense of hopelessness, Lord, um, that your victory over death, I just speak that over every person here now. Just bless them to have a sense of your profound victory and your power over everything now, Lord Jesus.
Say. Yeah.